Well, good evening, everybody, uh, dear listeners. We are speaking with Mr. E. Michael Jones. Uh, like it or not, he is one of the most influential Catholic intellectuals that are alive today. So nice, nice for you to to giving me some time, some of your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> well, I think it's it, it stands. Uh, so, but did did not help you much. In order, I mean, you are dig digitally persecuted. I've seen. We're struck down, but not abandoned, as Saint Paul said. Is this is this? Can we say that uh, is some kind of a state persecution? I mean, some kind of a state censorship. No, we, we wish we had a state here. We do not have a state anymore. We have uh, big private organizations like Google and Amazon that rule us in the absence of a state. We live in a country that is ruled by warlords, it's, so it's Somalia. The United States is one big uh, Somalia right now. And we just have to uh, make sure that we don't do anything that offends the warlords who are in control of our culture. Well. I mean, uh, let's say, in Catholic circles, you are an important figure, and uh, I don't know, banning you completely from from three platforms, it's as if somebody told that that USSR did not ban Slozhenitsyn, that was uh, Commissar Igor that signed the paper or something like that. Yes, we could have an interesting discussion about uh, which system is more tyrannical, uh, communism or capitalism as a practice in the United States today. Uh, I don't know, you can tell me, but uh, if we had a government, if the government did this to me, I would have recourse. Okay. If, they, if they arrested me, I could call a lawyer and I could have a trial and I could defend myself. I can't do any of this with Google. I can't do anything with Amazon. I can't do anything with Facebook. These people control the marketplace, uh, they, you need, Amazon has 80% of the book market, over 80% of the book market. If you're not on Amazon, you do not exist and you have no recourse if they ban you. Well, this is, this is tyranny. This is a, we live in a completely tyrannical society right now. Uh, so whether it's more tyrannical than communism in Yugoslavia or less tyrannical, I don't know. You tell me. Well, it's a different kind of tyranny, I guess. Uh, well, right. I have, I have unfortunately, I have some bad news for you too, because, well, I mean, if if anybody will have an idea of canonizing you, it won't pass in the system like this. I mean, with the with actions that that are taken by by the Holy See at this time. Uh, well, let me explain. It's about it's about Stepinac, our Archbishop. If you allow me in a short introduction uh, before going into the matter, so Stepinac was basically the Archbishop of Zagreb in the period before the Second World War, during the Second World War, and after the Second World War. So basically, his his track record during the Second World War is not an issue. He was he was a solid, he was something that you would expect of a Catholic, of a good Catholic. 
Uh, he was saving uh, the Jews and the Serbs during the persecutions. We have numerous books about him saving innocent people. One of those books is the is a book ro ro uh, written by Esther Gitman, a Jewish uh, writer, that wrote a book called Aloysius the Peanuts, Pillar of uh, Humanity, of Human Rights, sorry. Uh, but the, the problem is, uh, so basically in the book you can find that uh, he personally organized saving of a uh, Jewish retirement home, that he basically evacuated it and hid the Jews in the monastery outside of Zagreb. Uh, he also, but uh, in the book you can read that uh, his, his commands and let's say his actions, uh, well, resulted in some 200 to 400 Jews saved during the, the, the Second World War. Uh, the same thing with the Serbs. So when, he, when we, he was uh, convicted, I mean when he was arrested by the, by the let's say, by the communists, you had, uh, you had some Serbs writing an open letter uh, defending the Archbishop. Well, did not help. So the, the long, sto long story short, uh, he was imprisoned, he was convicted, found guilty, imprisoned, and uh, in the 70s uh, the process of his canonization began. It was in the final stages now, and in order to finish it, uh, some problems arose. One of the problems is his statement from the 30s, in which he says that, well, behind all of porno pornography in Zagreb, there are Jews and Serbs. So obviously, well, it's an anti-Semitic and the Serbophobic statement. And I immediately, <laughs> I immediately thought, well, <laughs> I heard this stuff <laughs> from someone, from someone also, I mean. So I guess, I guess you're the guy to come to. Yes. Okay. Now, first of all, uh, Cardinal Holland in Poland at around the same time, said exactly the same thing. Uh, he said the Jews were behind pornography in Poland. Now, did these cardinals just make this up? Or is it true? Is it true that Jews are behind pornography? Well, you're the expert. <laughs> I'm the expert, that's right. <laughs> Why am I asking you? <laughs> so the point here is that I said this, <laughs> in an article in uh, 2002 or 2003, and it led me to be banned from the synagogue of conservatism in America. I was, I was scheduled to give a talk at a big organization, and they banned me uh, from that. And then after that, a Jewish professor by the name of Abrams published all of my material, took all of my material, published in the Jewish Quarterly, and the only thing he changed was the value judgment, because I said Jews are pornography, behind pornography and pornography is bad. And he said, yes, Jews are behind pornography, but pornography is good. That's the only difference. So you've got all these people saying Jews are behind pornography. You can find Jews who say Jews are behind pornography. But if you say it, you're an anti-Semite and you will be banned. Now, the problem here is not Cardinal Stepinats saying that Jews are behind pornography. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that. It was common knowledge in the 1930s. The whole battle 
over uh, the Legion of Decency in the United States during the 1930s was over uh, obscenity uh, in Hollywood. So everyone knew it, okay? But no one was allowed to say it, okay? Now, that's not the problem. That's true. That's a true statement. What is the problem here? The problem is that Jews now have control over who gets canonized in the Catholic Church. This is an absolutely intolerable situation. Who gave the Jews the right to tell Catholics who their saints are? Who is that? Tell me, who is it? Who came, who came to Zagreb to, to give the bad news to the Croatians? What was his name? It was uh, Cardinal Parolin. Parolin, yes, okay. Now, what is the problem here? It's not only Jews have the right to determine who the Catholic saints are, Jews have the right now to determine who is a Catholic in good standing, which is just a variation on the same theme. So I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, Nairobi, and uh, I'm scheduled to give a talk at the Catholic University of East Africa. Now, 17 years before I went there, I, was, I gave a talk at Strathmore University. So I called up my friend at Strathmore and said, since I'm in town, why don't I just give a talk at Strathmore, too, since I gave one there? Well, he contacts the dean. Guess what the dean does? What is the dean going to do here? Is the dean going to call me up and say, hi, I remember you? Because she was there. I met her before. Do you know what she did? She Googled me on the Internet, and the, the first thing that comes up whenever my name comes up is going to be the ADL website. And so she goes to the ADL, and uh, they say that I'm an anti-Semite. So she says, we're not going to invite this guy. He's an anti-Semite. Now, Jews have the, have the ability now to determine who is a Catholic in good standing. This is intolerable. This is an intolerable situation. There is never... Am I, am I overgeneralizing here? Has there ever been a time in the history of the Catholic Church when Jews have had this power? Well, in this case, in case of Stepinets, uh, there actually is, let's say, there are not, not, not only Jews. I mean, uh, technically, is the delegation of the Serb Orthodox Church then what that was called by Pope Francis to let's say to talk and to dialogue with the Croatian Commission in order to to let's say to find a compromise on Stepinac. Find a compromise? <laughs> what compromise? <laughs> What's compromise have to do with a sainthood? Either you are a saint or you're not a saint. What is this compromise stuff? Let's let's take a step back here. Let's take a step back and go back to the end of World War Two. After World War II, the Soviet Union took over all of Eastern Europe. The Croats were sold out at Blyborg, okay? The Allies uh, returned them, uh, and Tito orchestrated this notorious death march. Okay. And the persecution of Stepinac was part of that takeover. Okay, it wasn't the only place it happened. Cardinal Wyszynski was put on trial by the Poles. And Cardinal Mzenti was put on trial in Hungary by, by, the, by the Soviet puppet there, uh, the Soviet puppets who were installed there. Now, uh, this is part of the campaign. It wasn't just Stepinac, it was uh, an attack, a communist attack on the Catholic Church. 
Well, who well, is responsible for this? Well, in a way, Stepinac is in a bit different position because uh, at the uh, 1948, uh, this was this famous event that's called Tito-Stalin split. Uh, basically, at that time, what happened is something similar that uh, that, mis that, <laughs> that the priest called Hepburn uh, did with the with the universities in the U.S. Uh, basically, Hesper. Hesper. Ah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> basically, Tito was uh, the let's say the marshal of the West. He was in charge of uh, of uh, let's say of the of the Soviet or Bolshevik uh, parts of the Europe. I mean, from from France to Greece. It's all the all the spy networks, uh, the logistics, the the organizations. Uh, he was he was in charge of all that. And at one point there was disagreement between him and Stalin, and he basically <laughs> took control of the entire Soviet operation in all these big parts of Europe. That that was very costly to to build. It took lots of lots of years for the for the Comintern or the for the for the Soviet secret uh, service to build, and it uh, was a big investment, and he basically appropriated it. And and the story is that he became uh, neutral, not neutral, but non-aligned. Well, it's something uh, non-aligned in the Cold War is something similar of being an atheist in Northern Ireland. You're either Catholic atheist or you're Protestant atheist. Right. So Tito was was uh, was one hundred percent an American atheist. I mean, well, he, he was, was American. A, he was a socialist. I mean, the, the non-aligned movement was socialist. No. The, the people, people forget the role, the geopolitical role that Yugoslavia played in the 1950s. It was, it was a significant role in world politics because he had the so-called non-aligned nations behind him the, who said that they didn't want to be communist or uh, American imperialist, and so they had their own identity. Julius Nerera was part of this non-aligned uh, movement. Uh, India was part of it. Uh, Nasser was part of it in uh, in Egypt. A whole group of people, and we all—it's all forgotten now because of the polarization that uh, accelerated when John Paul II became became Pope. Uh, but uh, uh, Nerere uh, was a Catholic, but he was a socialist, and and he was uh, determined to to square that circle. When I was in Dar es Salaam, I asked his daughter, did your father ever read Quadragesimo Anno? Which says, no Catholic can be a socialist or a communist. <laughs> she had never heard of Quadragesimo Anno. Nobody ever heard of this. Nereri could not have succeeded as president of Tanzania if he were not a socialist. Okay. Because that's where they got the money. He could go to Olaf Palma and the, Palma or Willy Brandt would always write him a check because he was part of the Socialist International. And I suspect that this is what uh, Tito saw. Well, Tito was, also, Tito was also born, uh, was born as a Catholic. Uh, from, uh, right. He's from mixed Croatian-Slovenian uh, heritage, but uh, he was a baptized Catholic. But right. he was also uh, excommunicated in '46 when he convicted Stepinac <laughs> by Pius XII. But what, yeah. what, what I was aiming at 
was the American involvement in, 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 in Stepinac's uh, trial. Because when Tito splits from Stalin, I mean, and takes all the, all the Soviet, let's say, possession, all the Soviet operation in this huge part of Europe, I mean, huge part of Europe, in all of, of the Balkans, it was infrastructure, organization, he took everything with him, and he switched the sides, basically. So at this point, the, the, the America, the US, is, is to Tito what today Russia is to Assad. I mean, it was like air for him. We have, right. I, live, I live near... near are, you sure, are you sure it was America and not England? Because England was <laughs> definitely involved during World War II yeah, in suppressing um, the Sir Mihailovich. Yeah. Everything he did got attributed to Tito. Because the, the MI5, uh, Randolph Churchill, Guy Burgess, all the Cambridge traders were in charge of intelligence. And they, they were the ones that created Tito as a great hero. Yeah, it, it's just, uh, the story that, uh, I've, that I've heard here from, let's say, from, 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 uh, let's say from tradition, is that, uh, that the British uh, played the wrong card. They were, uh, they immediately, the royal, the royal family, Went to England and they put all this, all this, all their eggs in this royalist basket. That was a loser from the start because nobody liked the guy. Even, even the, even among he was, a, let's say he was, a, he was ty tyrannical in his rule <laughs> in the former Yugoslavia, and it was any to build anything on him was dead, dead at, at the start. The Americans here played much better roles. We are talking after the 48, after 1948. So the World War II is over. There is a Tito-Stalin split. Uh, the guy in charge of the CIA in Belgrade, it's called Charles Morton English. He's from Vancouver, the former OSS, then the CIA. And he basically, he makes an arrangement and starts... It's the same, the same, the same kind of situation we have now with with Syria and Russia. I mean, the only thing that kept Yugoslavia from being, let's say, overrun by the Soviets and by the Eastern Bloc was the direct American help that was here present in huge quantities. I mean, there was like ship after ship coming in the port of Rijeka, full of uh, planes, tanks, stuff, and ammunition. And basically, what I wanted to say when I'm aiming this, you have the nice story about the, the, this Catholic uh, senator, Pat um, McCarran, from Nevada, I think. So it was yes. obvious that, that Stepinac was, was uh, not guilty, that he's imprisoned uh, because basically he refused to separate the church from Rome and to make a patriotic uh, Croatian church let's let's call it that way he openly said uh, I'll rather die so they they kind of they wanted to fulfill his wish uh, he was sent in a, in a jail he was jailed and this guy Pat McCarran was let's say a Democrat and a Catholic and he didn't like he knew all of that and he was uh, in charge of the foreign uh, foreign help committee or something like that a committee, foreign affairs. Foreign affairs committee or something like that. He basically wanted to veto all these ships and all this help going to Yugoslavia until they 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 released the the cardinal, the until they released Stepinac out. But uh, 
the let's say the wasp ruling class was was fine by having Stepinets in, in prison because for their taste uh, the Catholics were too strong in Europe anyway and releasing Stepinets would would not I'm not really sure why they dislike the Catholic Church uh, getting stronger in Europe but I'm sure you can I mean there is there is uh, there is some statements of Stepinets about uh, Luther being a false prophet prophet and uh, the reformation being a deformation that's responsible for the his words are uh, bloody hell that is today in Europe or something like that that there is a statement well, the, for the, po the point here is that there were people that were outraged by what McCarran did because it wasn't just it wasn't just that he represented Catholic interests across the board during that period of time. Also, the whole birth control operation, McCarran was uh, part of opposing that. So you had you, as I said, I've said it before, but America is just like Yugoslavia. It's the same thing. You got three ethnic groups based on three religions: Protestant, Catholic, Jew as opposed to Croat, Serb, Muslim. It's the same thing, and they're always at war with each other over who's going to dominate the, uh, the Republic. And so this was the war that was kind of suppressed during World War II because uh, the government needed Catholics to go over and die fighting uh, their fellow their cousins in Germany and places like that. Uh, but after the war, it came back with a vengeance. And you can have uh, books like uh, Paul Blanchard's American Freedom and Catholic Power, and you can see what what happened. There's an alliance now, a Jewish-Protestant alliance against the Catholics. Because in certain circles, and I'm talking now about the intelligence community, which is basically all WASP Protestant. They all came from Yale. They were all, the CIA came from Yale. It was all members of secret society like Skull and Bones. Okay, and they felt that the Catholics were taking over the world. That's the way they felt in the 1950s, and all the way up until 1963. Uh, because, uh, and, and th their worst nightmare seemed to come true when John F. Kennedy was elected president. This, and, and I think this led to his death. I mean, maybe you believe that it was a lone deranged gunman that killed John Kennedy. I mean, maybe you believe that. Uh, that's the official story. It was created by Alan Dulles to cover over a conspiracy. And the conspiracy involved Lyndon Johnson, uh, the CIA, and Israel. That's the conspiracy that killed John F. Kennedy. But I'm saying at this point, there was war, covert warfare going on against the Catholic population of the United States of America. Psychological warfare in terms of sexual corruption. Kinsey. Kinsey was used as a weapon against the people of Germany, specifically the, the uh, Catholics in Germany, who had their own Legion of Decency. It was called the, the Volkswagenbund. Uh, their battle against Schmutz und Schunt. And Kinsey was the weapon. That's when the word report became a German word. It wasn't a German word. That's just one manifestation of what I'm talking about, of war against the Catholics being waged by the United States of America. The second was urban renewal, the ethnic cleansing. That is, that's a, a Yugoslavian idea, isn't it? The, the term ethnic cleansing came into English usage when, when Yugoslavia broke up.
But that was happening in America in all of the big cities of the north and the east that had large Catholic populations. The blacks were being sent into those Catholic neighborhoods and Catholic parishes to engage in ethnic cleansing. So there are all of these similarities. And in order to understand what's going on, you have to know who the players were. You know, that, that's the story. It's very similar. There's another instance that we have to talk about here, which is basically, I think I mentioned it before, but Dusan Makabiev's film, W.R., Mysteries of the Organism. This comes out in 1970 or 1971, and it is announcing the new Marxism. The new Marxism is sexual. It's not economic. And it came from Yugoslavia. It, it had a big impact on America. It was played up uh, in uh, uh, Rolling Stone. Big interview uh, with Dusan Makaviev, I believe, in Rolling Stone about his movie. This was all played up because there was going to be some mystical convergence here, like Yugoslavia. You know, in other words, the new, uh, uh, the left wing in the West was going to link up with the left wing in the East, and the common denominator was going to be sexual liberation. And Yugoslavia played a big role in that over here. Well, Yugoslavia, as it was uh, officially separated from the, from the communist brothership of the Eastern Bloc, uh, here was actually the open access of, of, of Hollywood movies. And I remember in the 80s, it was uh, also, uh, let's say, uh, basically uh, the, the, the new, new wave of soft porn was coming uh, basically from Germany, uh, from Germany in the 80s to then to, the, to Yugoslavia. That yeah. was, but in the 80s, uh, everybody knew that communism was on its last legs. So it's... It did not did not matter anymore. At the time. That's right. I I, I I was in Mostar in 1988, and uh, it was in 1981. Tito died, and as soon as Tito died, within one year we had Medjugorje, the the apparition that was run by the CIA, and now that's been regularized. I think we talked about this uh, the last time. Yeah, we that, that's where that's where our first interview was on Medjugorje some ten years ago, I guess. Yeah. So what, who is, who's controlling Parolin? I mean, what, is, this, is this gratitude? Is this gratitude to Croatia for uh, breaking with Yugoslavia? You know what I mean? The independent Croatia that completely offended the Orthodox and broke off all relations, ecumenical dialogue between Rome and the Orthodox because the Vatican... And Germany were the first groups to uh, countries to recognize Croatia as an independent Catholic country, and now this is the way they thank you. This is their way of saying thank you, Croatia. We're going to suspend the canonization proceedings of Cardinal Stepinac. Well, there is there is actually the, the mixed Croatian Serb commission that basically blocked the the canonization of Stepinac. Is uh, it is basically some attempt uh, to the to the Catholic uh, Serbian Orthodox dialogue, uh, but we could talk about that too. That is an interesting topic. Uh, I see. I I, I see that uh, I basically don't think uh, don't don't see the, the the independence of Croatia. And the independence of the Yugoslav republics, the way the way you guys see it. I mean, I'm here. I'm here 
on the, on my let's say on my home side. I mean, I, I basically live here, but also. Uh, you have to have in mind that uh, that it was not ha. one thing. One thing that that uh, that changed basically uh, from Stepinets to this day is the way the Catholic Church looks at Protestants. The the Catholic Church looks at, uh, at the Orthodox. Stepinets, in one of his uh, one of his statements, said uh, it was about abortion that. Uh, uh, he he always called them schismatic government in Belgrade that uh, does not want to do anything about the plague of abortions in Zagreb because the Serbs, Serbish, Serbian Jews doctors are behind it. They don't care about them breaking the law. He was writing letters to the doctors and stuff. So you can see this his attitude that's like it's basically schismatics and the the way that that. Uh, Let's say Catholics and uh, Serb Orthodox should live together. It's 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 some kind of modus vivendi, but to dialogue. I mean, what what what's here to dialogue about? There are, uh, I mean, who 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 who's in the right church? I mean, whose church is the right church? How can you dialogue about that? This well, is, this I mean, is, it depends this is... on what you mean by dialogue. I mean, we've already had uh, the Council of Florence in the middle of the 15th century uh, healed that schism, healed the great schism, and they sent the cardinals, uh, they sent the, the Orthodox back, and the people rejected it. So that was the end of that. I, I don't think these uh, we're talking about insurmountable theological problems here. I, I don't see it that way. Yeah, basically, I see. I see. It's always some tort, some part, some type of geopolitical issue that keeps these people divided. Yes, the the the, the way I see it is that the let's say the the coming together of the churches uh, was uh, what prevented the the reunification of the churches was national interest of these right. of these states because. Uh, you said something. You said a very nice statement that when you take uh, take the Bible out of the church, what happens? But, well, the same thing. If you take uh, the sea of your church out of of some uh, supranational place like Rome, and you put it in your nation's capital, well, what happens? You have the the, the super tribe. You have the something like chosen people 2.0 or something like that. That it's very hard. That that can be that can You're be talking buried. about the Orthodox now, the yeah, national I'm, churches. Yeah, I'm talking about the national churches that are very effective, but in the same time, I mean that there is not much in common to dialogue and to try to. I don't think that that that, that there will be some unification through dialogue here, because because it will mean to give up their advantage and their their status of the true church. I mean, they cannot unify without giving that uh, up. How about, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not disputing the fact of what the true church is and national churches or anything like that. But when I, the last time I saw Bishop Perich, uh, I, I brought up this book by Avril Manhattan, which uh, is still, you know, it was created during the, the show trials. It was created at the time of Stepinac's as propaganda, it's, it's uh, communist propaganda to destroy uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, discredit the Catholic Church by attacking Stepinac. 
Okay, so I said, well, why don't we get together and come up with a real history of what happened during the war? You know, let's have a, a, a joint Serb-Croat commission and we'll go over the documents. So then he said to me, well, yeah, great idea, but the government took all the documents. They pulled a truck up to the chancery office in Mostar and looted the entire documents, all of the archives, and so they have no basis. Uh, at least that's what he told me uh, for, for uh, coming together. Okay, what, what I want to say, the, the, it's known why the communists disliked the peanuts. I mean, it was the ideological enemy, and he refused to, to, to establish the national church. But right. you have, besides the communists, you have now two groups that are opposing Stepinac. Is the uh, basically the Serb Orthodox Church, and is the well? I won't say Jews because some Jews really, some Jews actually nominated Stepinac. There is some rewards for the guys for the people that that saved Jews during the Second World War, and he was nominated nominated twice. But I mean, he is after all an archbishop, so they they passed him right. on that. But, but uh, only one of those groups has veto power in the Catholic Church. Well, the Serbs, the Serbs don't have veto power over who gets made a saint. Well, well in this in, case, maybe in Yugoslavia they do. <laughs> not in general. In this case, they do because they are made. Uh, there is this pa uh, papal commission that includes also the Serb side in order to 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 further the good relations between the two churches and for the let's say for future uni unification. But what I wanted to say is their motives. Uh, for opposing Stepinac are not the same as communist motives. Uh, he saved some Serbs and he sa was saving Jews and Serbs during the war, but they have a bigger motive to oppose him. It's kind of like of a, it's against their national interest uh, for him to be canonized. Let's put it that way. I mean, okay. the, the Serbs and the Jews that were saved that are like little Serbs and little Jews. Here, here is this big game. <laughs> In, in, yeah. trying to, in trying to, to make him look bad and in trying to make uh, the Catholic Church look bad, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, should we, should we move on? Yes, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, I, I was reading your book, uh, The Logos Rising. Um, I'm going through it, but uh, the one thing that, 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 that I immediately realized that my, let's say, my education was, was in fact a big misdirection. I, we were, we when, were, tell me, tell me when, tell me when you were in, in, at the university. I was in the university in the early nineties. Uh, okay. 90 to 95. So was it still communist in its orientation? The professors were communists, were communists, were all, uh, from the former system. The professors were communists, but, but the, the ideology was now, let's say, ha, English. Uh, yeah. Liberal, 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 some kind of liberalism tied to capitalism, right. free markets. It's, all it's, the it, happened, it happened across the board, so don't feel bad. My, my, one of my sons went to the Sacred Heart University in Milan. One of the founders was Aminatori Fanfane, who wrote one of the best 
uh, economics books uh, in the Catholic tradition based on qu uh, quadragesimo run about the same time. And as my son arrives there, and all they're preaching is the English ideology, English economics, free trade, all of this type of stuff. It, it, swept, it swept the world. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we became what was what was pushed before the nineties. Let's say before we switched to from communism to the English ideology, uh, was also some kind some view of history that was actually uh, taught a lot about Hegel. And that will be interesting to you uh, because their view of history was like, uh, let's say, the communist Marxist view of history. It's like right. uh, it's like a big tournament tournament of philosophers, uh, something like uh, Aristotle beat Plato, then uh, Bacon beat Aquinas, and in the end you have uh, Hegel, let's say, being a pinnacle and beating all the rest, all the, all the guys that were in front of him, and then coming, and then uh, here we have Marx, the one that uh, let's say brought Hegel to a new level, and he's now the ultimate thing that, that we have. Right. So, so basically, this, this view of, of history and of philosophy is, is still well and alive in our, in our universities. I mean, the most popular uh, philosopher from, from, let's say, our region is Slava Zizek. He's, he's a Marxist Hegelian, I guess, at least nominally. Uh, so, do you have any comments on that? It's, it's, yeah, well, it's not, it's not, it's not surprising. <laughs> uh, but the, the problem, uh, I mean, we all know this. We all know, I mean, uh, the, pro the problem here goes back to Hegel. I, I don't know if you've read the, uh, the Hegel chapter. Have you read the Hegel chapter in Logos Rising? Not, not there yet. Okay, well, you, uh, that, that's uh, kind of a turning point because uh, Hegel... At this point, Hegel was born in 1770. He's 19 years old when the French Revolution breaks out. So he's a, a Lutheran seminarian, constantly uh, hearing news about the French Revolution in Paris and trying to bring these two things together in his mind. So can we bring Christianity and the Enlightenment together? And the vehicle for that was the dialectic. Because, uh, first of all, all German idealists were all German, they were all theology students. So we're talking about Lutheran theology here, uh, uh, trying to come to some type of understanding of the Trinity, because the dialectic is based on the Trinity. And the Trinity is the ultimate reality. We know that now. We know that Logos is the Trinity. Uh, this means that uh, there's a motion to God that, was completely antithetical to anything that the Greeks understood because the uh, sphere of the divine sphere was completely immobile. It was eternal forms and nothing changed. And there was no creation. Uh, and so you had this immobile. So suddenly you have this, this dynamic sense of history. Uh, and history has a, a logos to itself. And Hegel is uh, in the middle of this, trying, trying to figure it out. Uh, and then he got into trouble, got into trouble because uh, he had an affair with his chambermaid, 
This does not sound romantic. He's not like Schelling. Schelling was a brilliant guy. He was good looking. And he was, uh, the women, you know, were very attracted to him. Hegel was kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a clod. Wasn't very attractive guy. So anyway, he falls in love. It doesn't fall in love with her. He just uses her uh, as a sexual outlet. She gets pregnant, and then she announces that um, the baby, she's pregnant. And the baby's going to be born right around the same time that the phenomenology of spirit is coming out, and at the same time that Hegel is about ready to, I'm uh, not Hegel, that Napoleon has, has destroyed, is going to defeat the Prussians at Jena. All of these things come together, it's a crisis. And so what does he do? What does Hegel do? He falls back on Luther. That's, that's his, he understands Christianity through the eyes of Luther. And Luther is the man who attributed evil to God. It's called, uh, the doctrine is called the enslaved will, de servo arbitrio, and he wrote it right after he capitulated to his sexual appetites and married the nun Catalina von Bora. At that point he said, there is no free will, God did it. God is the author of evil. And, and at that point uh, you have uh, blasphemy, uh, you, you've completely destroyed the Christian theology, you've destroyed any sense of the Trinity, and this is precisely what Hegel did when he introduced negativity into the dialectic. So that the second stage of the dialectic is the negation of the first stage. Well, there can be no negation in God. There can be no evil in God, and as soon as you put that distortion in, you ruin the project, which was a legitimate project. There is a, I think, a real reason for you to want to understand the Trinity in the terms of your age, which meant the Enlightenment. In other words, it's above reason, obviously. But there is a way in which we can't understand it as informing the world we live in in a way that's important to do that. Well, he wrecked that. He wrecked that because he attributed evil to God because he didn't want to attribute it to himself because he's the same as Luther. It's not me, it's God who did it. As soon as you put evil into God, into the Trinity, as soon as you put evil as the second part of the, the, the dialectic or non-being, which is simply the Thomistic understanding of evil as the privation of being, the dialectic becomes a machine. It operates all by itself, and the first man to figure that out was Feuerbach, who was a student of Hegel, and he said, you don't need God if you have evil as part of the dialectic. And the man who understood Feuerbach was Karl Marx. And Karl Marx then turned history into a machine. And, well, once you do that, you, you can't understand history. Because the driving force behind human history is free will. It is the free will of human beings. That's not the only, that's not the end of the story, but it's part of the story. And so the whole conflict between uh, understanding human history is how understand how human free will interacts with God's predestination or God's eternal plan for human history. Both of those things are absolutely true, but it's not immediately apparent how those two things function with each other. Because we think if God has a plan, well then we don't have free will, or if we have free will, God doesn't have a plan. It's not that simple. And I've told you before, I think, that the, the story that explains this in the Bible is the story of Joseph, who says to his brother, the brothers sell him into slavery, 
uh, it's an evil that they do to him, but he ends up becoming head of the granary so that he can feed Egypt. So this is how complex God's plan is. He allows evil because he knows he can bring about a greater good. And so Joseph says to his brothers, the evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. All of that was lost on Hegel. All of it, and not, not all of it, because the cunning of reason is a sense and admission of that. The, the Hegel's idea of the the, the, list of the cunning of reason is some sense that there is an absolute power at work here and it will chain its ends uh, no matter what. And no human uh, will can stop it. You can collaborate it, you can try and thwart it, but no will can stop that, that power. And that was that led to Marxism, which is a crude version of uh, Hegel because it's completely historical determinism. And so this leads to the contradiction in Marxism. Well, if history is inevitable, then why do I have to do anything? Did you come across this? I mean, when you were a student, did anyone bring this up when you were had these Marxist professors, like that contradiction there? No, actually, it was a much, much lower level. Uh, how they explain Marx is, okay, so you have uh, the thesis, antithesis, and the synthesis. Well, the synthesis is basically not necessary. It's the better world. Is basically the synthesis is a revolution. So you have the thesis, and then the antithesis, and that's it. <laughs> it's like, right. and that's that was that was only the only way that was uh, that was put down that was explained was only in the let's say in the political terms of the of the class fight and and, uh, and all all this in all this uh, Marxist jargon basically. Uh, right. All that matters so in Hegel is basically the the, the class fight. And the the new order, the better world, and the revolution. That's that's uh, that's like that, that's like that's the core <laughs> of what the Hegel has to say. But like Marx put it in the better words. Uh, right. Sort of. It's a crude simplification of Hegel. Yeah. What, what 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 did everyone accept this? I mean, what was the what was the uh, atmosphere like in your philosophy classes when you were a student at the university? Well, I, I studied economics. I studied economics, so this 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 philosophy was more ha, was more like listening to the to the smartest people uh, on the university that were basically all this they were all the Hegelian Marxists uh, in the philosophy department, and uh, what was 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 the, the prevailing the prevailing. Now wait, now wait a minute! Now wait a minute! You're talking about 1990 yeah. to 1995. Well, communism had just failed. Yeah, it was a colossal failure. <laughs> the Soviet Union had collapsed. How can they be Marxist now? <laughs> I wanted to say the professors remained on their posts. They just they just changed the the the, the names of the subjects they were teaching. And uh, what what happened in the 1990s with the professors and and mean I mean with all the with, with all these with all this uh, Marxist and Hegelian, let's say, philosophical structure, what was, well, it can be true because, like, we are poor and, <laughs> and, the, and let's say, the British and the Americans must have must be way, way better philosophy because they are success successful and rich. I mean, it was that simple at the end. Who was, was saying that, the students or the teachers? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd say it was both ways. It was a general feeling 
Like, well, did the teachers convert? Did they convert to Anglo uh, Anglo American economics? Well, the most did. In fact, the most did in the in the economics in the in the faculty of economics. All of them, uh, maybe maybe one or two remained that that converted to more, uh, let's say, uh, Euro, uh, more continental economic uh, flavor uh, that was uh, closer to some kind of of uh, of. Uh, let's say we had we had this we had this uh, working. Uh, uh, it was. Some uh, socialism. It means, uh, ah, let's say, market socialism would would be one one translation. What about German German uh, the Sozial Marktwirtschaft? Was that did that like Adenauer and Erhard? Did that have any impact on the way that people were talking? No, I would say Rerum uh, Novarum and Quadragesimo Anno had more impact because. Uh, there were lots of uh, professors that were born as Catholics and from the, let's say, Catholic upbringing. And I think that the encyclicals uh, played, uh, had a bigger influence than the German economic thought here. Okay, well, the Germans were just implementing Quadragesimo Anno anyway. Okay, okay, it, fair. Uh, it was implemented, but not via Germans, but let's say from reading the direct source. It was even commented in in, in some uh, let's say when when uh, when the encyclical well, the last one went out, it was also reviewed by by let's say socialist and Marxist professors. Uh, I read some reviews and it was they they call it ah it's a cheap trick. Uh, they are saying this, the similar things that we are just there. He's not calling it socialism and that kind of. Well, the conservatives say the same thing about Catholics over here. <laughs> disagree, they call you a communist. But, but conservatism is dead over here. Conservatism is completely irrelevant now, largely because of what I said at the beginning, because the big threat now is not government. We don't have a government. We've got oligarchic warlords who rule us, and they're called Google and Amazon. And what does conservatism have to say about this? Nothing. It's good. It's not tyranny if the private individual does it. If it's not government, it's not tyranny. It's, conservatism is completely dead and completely irrelevant to the world we live in. We are coming to these terms too. Uh, here, well, here we, we, let's say, we don't have, what would you call conservatism? Would be, would be here some uh, center-right nationalism or something like that. Well, uh, libertarianism. Uh, Austrian school economics, whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever you want to call it, this defense of capitalism uh, as state-sponsored usury, the yeah. whole thing, it's all obsolete, it's all gone. It was killed by two people. One of them was Donald Trump and the other one was Pope Francis. Between the two of them, they killed conservatism. It's completely irrelevant now. I think that will that will need few years to come to, to us. We are always behind. <laughs> we always we always lagging behind. Just get, just I, what type of reception would my book Barren Metal have now? Let's say if we did a, a seminar combining Barren Metal and Logos Rising, what type of reception would I get in Croatia? Well, Barren Metal is a huge book. Yes, <laughs> would, I think what. What would what would be what would have have a nice reception in Croatia was Libido Dominandi for sure, 
and maybe one of the early one of the early books uh, about about the modernity or about the architecture. That would I think that that will be that would be uh, okay. So, easy to so understand. tell me who controls the university now in Croatia. Well, the same folk that that were in the university before. Nothing changed in the university. The same uh, Marxists. <laughs> well, it's more like a coalition here. It's a it's a coalition of well, let's let's call it uh, uh, the the former Marxist. Uh, the, in the in the U.S., you would call it left wingers. Is it Foucault? Is it sexual liberation as, as the form? Is that the, the new Marxism in Croatia? That's Dusan well, Makaviev's version. It started in Croatia. The promotion of Wilhelm Reich started, not in Croatia, but in Yugoslavia. Yes, yes. Is that we, what it is? We, <laughs> it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. But it's, it's mixed. It's mixed. It's like some some uh, enlarged coalition. There are Foucauldians, there are former Marxists, uh, there are also some some uh, Austrian school libertarians, uh, all meshed together, <laughs> just to be Foucault, just to be just Foucault to be opposed. Became, Foucault became an Austrian school libertarian in San Francisco. He oh. was he was teaching courses on von Mises. Yeah, they they, they all go together, and what they are what they are opposing is this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I would call it traditionalism. Is yeah, the, where are the Catholics? Where are the Catholics? The the Catholics are all the Catholics at Medjugorje. No, they're all smoking no, no, dope. No. <laughs> no, they're, they're all not. shooting up phony apparitions. Where are the Catholics in Croatia? The Catholics. The Catholics are I mean, under... at the university. I'm talking about where are the the Catholic the representatives of the Catholic intellectual tradition? Where are they? They are on the, on the internet mostly, for most of the part. There are, there are a few portals and uh, a couple of, uh, let's say, uh, blogosphere, and they are on the internet. In the media, in all the, in all the, let's say, in all the media, except for the Catholic ones, there is this constant barrage that is, I guess, the same like everywhere else in, in, West of, in Western Europe or in America. It's basically the same news, the same format, the same messages, just repackaged. Yeah. And you have the Catholics, well, stuck stuck on the internet. Uh, the the only the only firm ground that they can stand on is some kind of uh, ethno traditionalism. But the, this this capitalism is also trying to trying to smuggle in to get smuggled in into into right. this traditionalist did, movement. Do you, do you, did you see the show I did with Alash and Echi, the yes. Slovenian? Yes, yes, I've seen the show. So who, who pops up on the show? It's Tom Sunich. Tom Sunich suddenly shows up, and I asked Tom, are you, are you white or are you Catholic? I know you're Croatian, but are you white or are you Catholic? Is Tom, is Tom Sunich... Uh, 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 does that represent a significant portion of Croatian thought at this point? No, it does not. I think he is a project to to popularize that kind of a thought here. 
he has a blog. I mean, he's he's read about, but it's not the way. It's not he's not the. I don't think that 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 most of people would buy him. Uh, well, it's not surprising. Yeah. White has nothing to do with with Yugoslavia. That's it has right. nothing to do with that. The white has nothing to do with Croatians and Serbs. Uh, That's right. Absolutely. What what the what dynamic uh, dynamic uh, that's in Croatia and I guess in Serbia too is this constant uh, constant warfare uh, that's religious in nature but is disguised as ethnic conflict and there yes. is there is this question about uh, identity about stealing and and imposing each other. Uh, some identities that 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 are misleading, and there is a question uh, about uh, the relations between the nation, let's say nationality, nation, nation state, morality, and the church. Right. Uh, let's say what are the priorities? I mean, the the, the nation, the nation state, the nation is also is. I guess it's a natural phenomenon. It's, it's a natural phenomenon. It is the same as the family, because the essence of human of human identity is logos, and the first manifestation of logos is the language which you speak, and you get that language from your ethnic group. You learn it from your mother, and you get it from your ethnic group. You do not get it from your family. You get it from your ethnic group. And so, Croatia is a classic example of something that is a category of nature. White is a category of the mind. That's imposed for political purposes. But ethnos is a category of nature, every bit as much as the family. There, there's no problem with this in Croatia. It will be understood. Uh, Tom Sunic is not the representative of, uh, let's say, of the majority of, uh, <laughs> let's say, Croatian, uh, Croatian thinking people. Uh, the problem is here. Uh, what about the nation-state, the borders, and the morality? Are we pushing the interests of our nation? Uh, and what's what's the limit here? If right. you, if that's, you are... that's exactly the issue. So is George Soros active? Does he control the university in Zagreb in the same way he controls it in Hungary? The, the Hungarian government banned his university because they saw it was subverting the Hungarian nation-state. Is that true of of Croatia. No, we, uh, our president actually decorated George Soros some 10-15 years ago because he spent a ton of money here in Croatia. That's right. So it and is the same situation. It's <laughs> exactly the same situation. Open society. So, so what we have here? But uh, I can see, I can see what, what, uh, what, what's, uh, what's, uh, uh, let's say, what's tempting about Soros. Because after all these wars, people are sick and tired of, of these ethnic conflicts, and you want you want some some resolution or some explanation of it. And right. One so of go those to the Jews, Jewish yeah. Jew Jew money, the solution <laughs> to every problem. Yes, <laughs> but the, but the, where I'm where I'm taking this, it's it's uh, constant. It's it's the same question with Americanism. I at least it's not the same question, but I see it that w this way. Uh, you are, we are Croatian, we are Catholics, but what we are first? What has a priority here? That's, this is the catch, I, uh, I think. Because if you, if, you, if you go too much in the national direction, 
if you uh, if you regard yourself let's say let's let's put it this way one 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 serbian media personality said that in this day and age uh, no nation can survive in this environment at least if it does not think of itself as a chosen nation i mean uh, so we're all Jews now. We have to be Jews. <laughs> exactly, but in but in a balkanized way, <laughs> we are. I mean, you the, the the problem starts when you start seeing your nation as a super tribe. That's right. And if you start if you start uh, dispensing morality, if uh, by the line, if something is good for my nation, it's moral. I think it's the That's same right. similar this thing. Is, this is this is part of the problem with ethnos. Ethnos by itself cannot survive. Ethnos by itself means that you are the only human being and that everyone else is uh, subhuman and you can kill them if you want. This is exactly the way tribes live that have no contact with civilization. It's, there are tribes in India. Alish just sent me a, a documentary about this tribe they discovered in India. They're still acting that way. They're off in the woods somewhere and the guy talks about how he used to go and kill the people in the other tribes, and he was proud of it. That's how you gain status, by having the number of skulls you had of the enemy tribe in your in your hut. That's why Ethnos needs Logos. You have to have some type of transcendent relationship, transcendent set of values. That's what the Catholic Church provided to Europe. That's why Europe developed the way it did. If you don't have, if you have transcendence without Ethnos, you have complete deracination, and it's just like a philosophy or an ideology. Okay, you need—it's like a soul without a body. It's like a ghost. The, the ethnos is the body, and logos is the soul. You need both of them. That's why the Catholic uh, Catholic Europe was so successful. Yeah, I mean, I—I'm obviously Catholic, and I understand it that. You need you need to, to subordinate, I guess, uh, your ethnicity to to the, your your ethnic or your national interest uh, must be on the on the priority list under the let's say the logos. It must be. It's viewed. It's always viewed throughout the creation history uh, as about uh, uh, let's say submitting to to the Vatican, submitting to the Pope is a recurring theme. In, in all yeah, I saw the Mestrovich statue in Split, where the bishop is giving the finger to Rum. I mean, he's holding up this finger. If he were an American, <laughs> he would hold up this finger. But this this is a standard Mestrovich kind of a Yugos or a, a Croat, uh, what should I say, resistance to Rome. Because Rome, we're not talking about Rome here. We're talking about Logos here. And the Catholic Church as the manifestation of Logos. We're not talking about the Vatican. That's where the problem starts. When you have some type of temporal uh, power play, all the way up to, to the independence of Croatia. I think that that was, that was problematic there too. This exercise of political power. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Catholic Church in a spiritual sense as the vehicle of Logos in human history. Everyone has to come to grips with that. Because that is the motion of Logos in history. And it's been that way ever since St. John wrote his gospel and took over the word Logos from the Greeks. You can't escape that anymore. No, no ethnic group on earth can escape this reality anymore. 
It's simply a fact. Amen. <laughs> Amen, brother. I'm preaching to the choir here. You should be preaching this to me. You know it. The Americans don't know it. That's the problem. Anyway, it's been good. I'm, I'm glad we had this discussion. Mike, thank you for your time.